One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hundreds of billions of dollars are pouring into the business of decarbonisation from Wall Street giants, corporate titans and governments alike. Will their bets pay off? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbhog, finance editor at The Economist, and also on today's show... Branchless neobanks are finally conquering America. But can their popularity outlast the pandemic? Like in any other tech business, customer acquisition and marketing can be a huge cost. You really need to build trust with people who may not have had the best experience with financial services in the past. And the cybersecurity industry is booming. But do those shelling out for protection get what they pay for? We have mischaracterized the problem and infantilized high-functioning people into thinking that there's nothing they can do about this. Scientific consensus is that we are causing global warming. In the late 2000s, interest in climate change had never been higher. And the Oscar goes to an inconvenient truth. America's former Vice President Al Gore won an Academy Award with that documentary, as well as a Nobel Prize and global attention. We have everything we need to get started. With the possible exception of the will to act, that's a renewable resource. Let's renew it. In the financial sphere, at least, that will to act seemed to be gathering. Billionaire venture capitalists who had successfully surfed the internet wave became convinced that clean technology would be the next big thing. The money poured in. Between 2006 and 2011, some $25 billion of venture capital were invested in clean tech startups. Then, just as suddenly, the enthusiasm evaporated. Over half of that $25 billion was lost. Clean tech was a dirty word among venture capitalists. But now a new wave of green investment is building again, and it's dwarfing that of the late 2000s. We're seeing tremendous outpouring of investor interest in climate-related technologies. Vijay Vaitisvaran is The Economist's Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor. In part because policy, uh, we've seen around the world very supportive policy from the European governments, from California, from China, and that provides some market certainty that you're going to get rewards. It also provides subsidies and other forms of government help, even direct investment in venture funds in the case of some European countries. So that's one reason. A second reason is consumers. Rare was the individual that would pay extra for a low-carbon product in the past, but things have changed. We can look at just the alternative protein market, as it's called, non-meat burgers that have become quite popular, Impossible Foods or Beyond is another one of its competitors with multi-billion dollar valuations. So innovators now have a strong expectation that climate-friendly products might be well-received. Or to put it differently, if you're seen as a dirty company, and there's a third leg, 
corporate interest. You're at the risk of boycott or missing out. And so it's a sense of hedging your risks or maybe seizing an opportunity. And that's creating corporate demand for green innovation as well. And how much money is pouring into green innovation? How does it compare in scale to the clean tech boom of a decade ago? It's much, much bigger. Now, the two are not exactly the same. Uh, what was called clean tech uh, 10, 12 years ago was broadly speaking, clean energy and related areas to do with the environment. Most of that is part of what's now being called climate tech. That's the fashionable term these days, uh, in part because the clean tech boom ended up in a terrible bust. So everyone is quite keen to rebrand this climate tech. But there is some sense in it because it goes beyond just, let's say, clean energy to include agricultural technologies that are often less glamorous than big oil, but are actually quite important to deal with. So it's a bigger addressable market, a bigger opportunity, and we're seeing much more money. The broad idea of the energy transition, if you want to call it that, which is the basic idea of decarbonizing everything, attracted over $500 billion for the first time in 2020. And you mentioned policy and the role that that had played. How much of what we're seeing is the result of green requirements being baked into national pandemic recovery and infrastructure plans? I think policy is important because you have parts of the world that are willing to lead. Investors are, are more confident they can make a bet for 10 or 20 years, but that's not the main engine of change. As that happens, we're actually seeing investor capital. That is, we're seeing not just a handful of brave or foolish venture capitalists, let's say. I mean, their business is to take audacious bets. What's happening is that we've been able to transform in time the attractiveness of climate investments so that now we're seeing follow-on capital, mid and late stage and growth capital. So where's that money coming from? So we're seeing institutions like JP Morgan, America's biggest bank, uh, committing a trillion dollars specifically to clean energy innovation. They're now increasingly de uh, developing the expertise to provide funding to startup firms and to venture capitalists between rounds of financing, for example. The big private equity players, many of them have announced just in the last few months, multi-billion dollar funds dedicated to climate. TPG out of Texas, of course, BlackRock, the world's biggest, Tamasek, the Singaporean giant, Brookfield, the Canadian giant. There's not generic ESG funding, which we all know about the phenomena where there's often maybe some good wishes, uh, but in fact, ends up with a lot of greenwashing. Well, these particular funds in the, in the billions of dollars specifically target clean technology innovation. And what this means is the venture capitalists can have some confidence that they can sell their stakes and make an exit. Now, another notable difference compared with a decade ago is that many big companies themselves have made commitments to decarbonize. What's the role of big business in increasing spending on clean tech? This is the most interesting part of the new climate financing landscape. And that is, there have always been some companies that have had corporate venturing funds. Intel is very famous for having a venture capital arm. GE dabbled in this with mixed success. But what's new is a number of big companies, including fossil fuel companies and utilities, but also retail companies like Amazon, most famously, Microsoft, for example, have set up billion-dollar-plus, multi-billion-dollar funds in some cases that are devoted to investing in clean technologies that would reduce carbon of their own business operations. It's often with a very selfish motive. Uh, speaking with the head of the Amazon fund, for example, he explained to me that they want to decarbonize the delivery fleet. And of course, delivery is at the heart of their carbon problem, right? Electric vans is one of their ideas. And a company called Rivian is a promising electric vehicle startup. They've invested as a venture capitalist would 
They're now so convinced that this company is going to help them solve the problem, they've put in an order for 100,000 vans whenever they can actually scale up and make it. There's no venture capitalist on earth that can both write you an early stage check and also guarantee you a significant market. It's clear that the picture is a lot more sophisticated and diverse than it was a decade ago. But do you also think there were lessons from the green investment bubble last time that have been learned? The people I've spoken with among the many veterans of the first clean tech boom and bust, they observed that this is hard technology. This is not like with mobile technology or software and apps where you can have a couple of guys in the garage crank out a new app in a few months and you can test it in the marketplace and, and iterate and figure out a quick path to profit. With climate tech, a lot of it is very hard fundamental engineering. Energy storage, for example, takes years and years. Similarly, the customer set, it's not an audience that Twitter, for example, can quickly scale to hundreds of millions or Facebook to billions. And as a result, a number of funds are taking a longer view, for example, rather than just a typical, let's say, three to five-year time frame for exit for VCs. We have people like Bill Gates and some of his billionaire friends who've created a, a long-term blue sky venture fund called Breakthrough Energy Ventures. And they don't set a time limit on how long they're going to allow technologies to be nurtured. And they only invest in technologies that they think will have a dramatic impact on climate change, that is half a gigaton of greenhouse gas emissions or more. And so we're seeing different kinds of investors that are being motivated to try to solve the problem in a new and interesting way. It sounds like there's ingredients, at least, of something transformational there. That's right. I think it's a very exciting time. Now, it must be said, I think a lot of these people will lose money. But as the veteran venture capitalists remind me, their business model is built on risk. And the good thing now is that we're having a lot more shots on goal. The climate problem is so hard that we need many more shots on goal so that we can get a few of those winners that are going to really make a difference. Vijay Vaitisvaran, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. To explore all our analysis of the latest news in business, finance and the markets, subscribe to The Economist. As well as Vijay's reporting on the green VC boom, you can find out why it's time most pandemic travel restrictions were scrapped and explore what the poems, art and fashion of China's millions of migrant workers say about their lives. For all that and more, subscribe at economist.com slash podcast offer. You'll find the link in the notes for this episode. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Next, long queues in stuffy branches, tedious customer service, and punishing overdraft fees. These are just some of the less than flattering depictions of American banking that the country's fintech firms are busy gleefully defying. America has long been more resistant than Asia and Europe to the charms of branchless neobanks. But that tide may now be turning. On Friday, August 13th, America's most valuable neobank, Chime, announced that its recent fundraising round valued it at $25 billion. Another, Dave, plans to go public through a SPAC merger worth $4 billion. 
Meanwhile, Revolut, which at $33 billion is Britain's most valuable startup of any kind, is hungrily eyeing the American market. So can America's belated love affair with branchless banking outlast the pandemic? The past year has been remarkable for neobanks, basically in every way you can count. The number of neobanks, the number of customers, the amount of funding, it's all very rapidly grown in the past year. Sharmili Budgayan writes about finance for The Economist. A neobank is essentially a bank that has no physical branches. It operates entirely online and aims to make banking what it's sort of typically not reputed to be. So they're very user-friendly, transparent, and importantly, they're free or almost free. There are about 100-odd of these digital banks today vying to shake up America's $700 billion banking industry, which has so far been pretty resistant to this disruption. So Chime, recently valued at $25 billion, is now as big as America's 13th largest bank. So it seems like it's an idea whose time has come. Now, most neobanks are not technically banks. They don't have banking charters. They work in partnership with chartered small banks. To what extent is that an advantage? Yeah. So how a neobank works in the US is different to what we've seen in other countries. So though you'll open a, and manage a bank account, say with Chime, your deposits are actually sitting in a small bank that they'd partner with, which for Chime, for example, sits somewhere in Oklahoma. Uh, this is for two reasons. So one is that it's pretty laborious to get a bank charter in the US. And the second reason is that you can do pretty well with that one, at least for now, and may even have an advantage. So how most neobanks make money is off interchange fees, which is basically a small cut of the transactions that you're making using your debit cards. Now, small banks in the US are able to charge higher interchange fees than, say, Chase or Wells Fargo. So when Chime partners with a small bank, it gets access to some of that. How much of the growth and the explosion in the usage of, of neobanks comes down to closure of regular bank branches during the pandemic? The pandemic kind of accelerated this decade-long trend. So the first nudge, as you said, was kind of lockdowns, bank closures and the shift to digital. Uh, the second was actually stimulus checks. They can often deposit any incoming cash into your account a few days quicker than a large bank would, two to five days earlier. I mean, during the pandemic, even having a bank account turned out to be a, an advantage in terms of getting access to stimulus checks, but this was sort of the cherry on top. And third, I think there was also a general interest during the economic downturn in terms of people wanting to manage their money with greater confidence. You can see where your money is going in and out, no overdraft fees, you can kind of dip into the red a bit. This all helped make the habit a bit more sticky. And so according to Apptopia, top neobanking apps posted nearly 20 million downloads in the first half of 2021 alone. And downloads for conventional banking apps essentially stayed flat. Obviously, downloads don't exactly correspond to users, but it is just a striking number. Now, neobanks existed before the pandemic. Tell us about the sort of underlying drivers behind this trend. Yeah, the primary one is actually financial exclusion from the incumbents. Actually, a pretty shockingly large number of people in the US are unbanked or underbanked. In 2018, the Fed estimated that one in five adults either didn't have a bank account or relied on other instruments such as check cashing, money orders, and payday loans. So some of the larger neobanks are kind of going after this group of what they see as everyday Americans and hoping to kind of bring them into the fold and help them become more confident in managing their money. This is quite different to what we've seen in Europe and explains why many of them also try and help educate their customers on kind of financial literacy and some, like Dave, even help you find a job. Separately, I think there's also a number of more niche neobanks that are going after very specifically underbanked groups. So immigrants, black people, Gen Z. 
And then, of course, being digital and user-friendly also appeals to many people who may be banked, but aren't over the moon with the kind of service that they're getting. Many neobanks, as you, as you say, see themselves as serving a social purpose and clearly market themselves as doing that. But this is also really good for their bottom line, isn't it? Serving the underbanked is good business. Yeah, so this is really the, the trillion dollar question. These are everyday Americans do tend to spend a lot and save relatively less, which helps for a business that's built on these interchange transaction fees. The second piece of good news is also that these neobanks hope that as they bring these previously excluded customers into the banking system, they will, to use Jared Fisher at Dave's words, graduate to a new economic segment and then can be served by the same neobank for their kind of changing needs. And this is something we've seen in other countries with digital banks dipping into wealth management, investing and so on. The less good news is that like in any other tech business, which is how they define themselves, customer acquisition and marketing can be a huge cost. You really need to build trust with people who may not have had the best experience with financial services in the past. Interchange fees as well don't make as good economics as lending products do. So you need very high volumes of transactions for this to kind of add up. So we might see some sort of consolidation in those segments. The incumbents themselves are kind of adapting as well, I guess. So, you know, the days of Bank of America not offering easy mobile and digital banking are gone. So does that mean the neobanks need to up their game? Well, I think some of the traditional players may be able to retain some customers because of these changes, but they will certainly struggle to get some of that new customer growth of the kind that neobanks are seeing partly because they have these internal legacy systems so that they may not be able to offer new product features as quickly or in the same way, and partly because they may risk cannibalizing bits of their other business. The big banks will certainly keep an eye on them and maybe try buying some of the smaller new banks. But looking at the experience in the UK or Europe, it's not clear that that'll quite pan out. Can neobanks capitalise on customers' interests then, do you think, beyond the lockdowns and the hardships of the pandemic? Well, it's looking quite good for them at the moment, but there are risks. For one, like with any digital business, they'll need to maintain very high standards in customer service and cybersecurity, which can be expensive. Two, it's still not clear how many of their users use or trust neobanks as their kind of primary banking relationship. The competition is heating up and kind of coming from unexpected places. It seems like everyone from Google, Walmart to even Robinhood is now dabbling into the world of debit. Regulation seems uncertain at the moment as well. And then lastly, there's the question of profitability, which will ultimately need reckoning with. So this might force some of the new banks to actually become a bit more like traditional banks that they were born to rival. We might see them become bigger, go into the lending space, which can be higher margin. And who knows, maybe one day they may even become real chartered banks. For now, I think they're focused on growth. Shamali Budgen, thank you very much. Thank you, my pleasure. For an introduction to the world of neobanks and the other big changes shaking up the financial system, have a listen to our episode of Money Talks from the 12th of May, which asked, does the world still need banks? That's Money Talks, does the world still need banks, wherever you listen to podcasts. And finally... This threat is not imminent. It is upon us. Colonial Pipeline is the operative largest pipeline carrying fuel from the Gulf Coast to the Northeast. The attack is affecting both national and local health systems. What some experts are calling one of the biggest cyber attacks of all time. The scale, frequency and daring of cyber attacks are increasing. 
The damage done ranges from inconvenience to utter catastrophe. With trillions of dollars at stake, a huge industry has sprung up promising to defend people. Spending on cybersecurity and the private sector is going up, but whether there's a meaningful reduction as a result in harm is much more debatable. Kieran Martin is the former head of Britain's National Cybersecurity Centre, which he helped create while running cyber defences for the intelligence service GCHQ. He spoke to our technology editor, Tim Cross, and recalled the moment he realised just how dysfunctional the industry is at the opening of a new top-secret state-of-the-art facility. We went into the room. They had that wonderful map of the world with what some people call pew-pew cybersecurity because there were lines pinging all over the globe showing hostile action from place to place. I'd been talking to a young analyst who clearly knew his stuff and turned to him and said, I've just seen something there from the Kingdom of Jordan firing something at the Republic of Chile. Could you tell me what that data point means? And he just giggled. I said, go on. He said, as you well know, this stuff is just here for the tourists. And that, to me, encapsulated in one anecdote the fact that we have a malfunctioning market. And in fact, you and some colleagues recently wrote a, uh, an economics paper trying to analyse exactly what the problem was. And it's called, Is Cybersecurity a Market for Lemons? Now, I think some of our listeners on Money Talks, um, that might make their ears prick up because, of course, there's a famous economics paper with a similar title. Well, as you've said, the report stole the concept of the market for lemons from the famous 1970 paper by George Akerlof, where he described the secondhand car market as a market for lemons because buyers couldn't distinguish between a good quality car, which he called a peach, and a lemon. So what does this do? Well, it's not very good for the buyer because they don't know what they're getting. And then, of course, the sellers of the peaches leave the market because they can't make the money that they deserve. This is remarkably similar to the modern cybersecurity market where no one can really tell what the products and services on offer do. So that's bad for the buyer, but it's also bad for the seller because how do they differentiate themselves? And then it's bad for our digital society. So we've got a really, really problematic, dysfunctional, broken market, a new market for lemons. Is the problem in cybersecurity that it's just too high tech, that, that it's, it's just too easy to to blind people with science or too hard to keep up with, with what's going on? I think the major part of the problem is psychological. Uh, we have infantilized people about cybersecurity and we've also told them about the wrong problem. So that is the sort of traditional uh, Hollywood view of cybersecurity. It's a catastrophic risk and it's all to do with really complicated systems that technologically are beyond us to understand. In actual fact, cybersecurity, for the most part, for most organisations, is a mundane business risk that is about the reduction of harm. It's about data protection. It's about business continuity in the event of ransomware. It's about continuing service provision. It's about not having valuable IP stolen. We have mischaracterised the problem and infantilised high-functioning people into thinking that there's nothing they can do about this. And, and so how, once you've got a market for lemons, how do, you, how do you fix it? So one thing which has been done a bit in key areas is government has, in effect, licensed uh, some of the operators to meet a specific technical standard. 
I do think, though, that it will not be popular in industry for government to expand that role because I think it's a very risky business for the government to get into, in effect, licensing companies. So I think we need to look at what have other industries done. I mean, Akerlof was in the used car market. And automobile security is often used as an example of where a previously anarchic and highly dangerous situation was improved through a combination of government and industry. What I'd like to see is a getting together of industry, both buyers and sellers, to develop some form of assessment framework where at least you can begin to try to get objective comparators between different providers and different services, agreed definitions of what a good service looks like. And does industry have any incentive to go along with that? Because, I mean, they're, they're raising money hand over fist. There's any number of cybersecurity startups. Spending's growing. If, if it's working for them, why why change? Well, I'm not going to sugarcoat this away. This is really, really hard for precisely the reason you've said. There may be movement in the public policy sphere which will incentivize this. If you look at the ransomware crisis at the moment, I think the US and other countries are likely to significantly tighten the requirements and indeed penalties uh, when it comes to anything that looks like critical infrastructure and change the incentives there. And the second is begin to try to nudge things like the insurance industry. And I think the insurance industry will get there itself. So the insurance industry is now taking a little bit of a pounding from the uptick in, in ransomware attacks. Because you're right, the incentives aren't automatically at this point in time. They may emerge over time. What would you suggest in the meantime? If somebody's listening and, and it's their job to think about IT security for their own firm, they go out into the market, they're faced with this wall of, of techno babble. What's the best thing to do for individuals in in the short run? When you're thinking of buying something in cybersecurity, just ask the basic questions. What does this do? No, I don't really understand that. Can you tell me that again? What does it actually do? What harm does it reduce? How does it compare to the competitor products in terms of the reduction in harm? If you don't understand it, you're at risk. So just ask people to explain it to you. Don't be embarrassed about not understanding it. The cynic in me might argue that the ultimate incentive here or the ultimate bad incentive is that the worst thing that could possibly happen for the cybersecurity industry is that someone figures out a way to make computers secure because then everyone's job goes up in smoke and the whole industry vanishes. Well, I'm a cynic too, but that might be too cynical even for me. I mean, there's no magic key that's going to make technology secure, but the closer you can come to building it into the products and services at source, then the more effective it will be. And if you do that, there's a fortune to be made here. I mean, there are already fortunes being made in cybersecurity, but there are serious fortunes to be made from transformative innovation. I mean, if someone could solve ransomware now, my God, there's a lot of money to be made. So it's just a question of where the fixes are. Our thanks to Kieran Martin and to Tim Cross. The producer is Amika Shortino Nolan. Tom Birchall is our sound engineer. I'm Rachna Shanbog, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. 
The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.